Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. I want you to look with me in God's Word this evening. And so Valerie will share with you a little bit about just a, a little testimony of how God has been working our life in the area of prayer. And again, it is rare for us to come to a church where the whole year emphasis is on prayer. So I think Pastor said this morning, last year's emphasis was on the Word, this year's on prayer. Praise the Lord for that. That is rare in the American church, that you're taking your whole year to focus on prayer and to do impossible prayer requests. One night, I should have had the team do it tonight, we did an impossible prayer request board with the team in August, when they showed up in August, and the other night I had them in a service. I said, how many of you got your impossible prayer requests answered? And like seven of them raised their hands. And a lot of them were for family members who have been wayward that now God is working in their life and bringing them back. And so praise the Lord for that. And that's exactly what we're going to see in God's Word tonight. I want to talk to you about reviving prayer. Old Leonard Ravenhill, the old revival preacher, he said this. He said, if you want to know how popular a church is, come on Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular the pastor is, come back on Sunday night. But if you want to know how popular God is, come to the prayer meeting. You know, it's interesting, growing up in the South, uh, I've been in the South my whole life until just recently we moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and that was the only bad end of this deal that we just did. We, we crossed the Mason Dixie line, and, and I'm up there. But other than that, we've been in the South our whole life. And one thing I've noticed in, in Southern churches, if you say you're having a potluck with fried chicken, green beans, and all that good stuff, the whole church comes out with that because they consider that special. If you say you're having a revival team, you throw up a bunch of beautiful young faces that sing beautiful songs, like, oh, that's kind of special. But if you call for a prayer meeting, you're going to have the lowest attendance every time. Every time. And that is the state of the American church. And what's so crazy about that is, is you have to ask ourselves, now why is that? Well, a lot of people can come up with a lot of reasons. Well, I think it's boring, or maybe I'm not where I should be, so I don't like praying. Or I'm scared if I go to prayer meeting, someone's going to call me and I've got to pray out loud. Or just to be honest, that's just not my thing. But I've heard every excuse under the book, or in the book, on why prayer is lacking. But what's crazy is, I've only been a part of Bible-believing churches. Now, when you say a Bible-believing church is a Bible-believing church, it means that they believe the Bible. And if we just had one verse on prayer, even though we've got hundreds, if we just had the verse I'm going to read to you tonight, it should cause the prayer meeting to be the biggest attended service of the church. And here it is, James chapter 5. Look with me in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. Let me stop right there. I'm not preaching on that passage. I'm preaching on the next verse. I would give you an interpretation on that passage, but that's not my job. I'll leave that to your pastor. Because a lot of scholars have different takes on what this is talking about, but I'll let pastor give you his take. But here's what I know for sure that we all agree on. Here's the next phrase in verse 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If we had no other verse on prayer but that one, it should be enough, if we truly say we believe the Bible, to cause the prayer meeting in the American church to be the greatest event of the week. God 
just told us through James, the half-brother of Jesus, who did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. In fact, church history says that James, who wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his nickname was Old Camel Knees. Does anybody know why his nickname was Old Camel Knees? Because of how much he prayed. They called him Old Camel Knees because of how many hours he spent on his knees in prayer. In fact, church history tells us that James was killed for the faith. He was martyred. And they took him up on top of the pinnacle of the temple and they threw him off. James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. The energetic, boiling hot, fervent prayers of a person who's walking in experiential righteousness, like we talked about this morning, causes great things to happen. I mean, that right there. You say, God, can you lie? God says, I cannot lie. God, do you always tell the truth? I always tell the truth. God, do you always keep your word? Yep, that's why we've written that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And God just looked at every saint and said this, If you walk with me and are filled with my spirit and you pray, I'll do wonders through you. Yeah, you want to know why the American church I know doesn't believe that? Because of prayer meetings. And then James does something that blows my mind every time I read it. I mean, he's just sitting here talking. He goes, yep, the effective fervent prayers were righteous, man, available much. I'm like, oh, wow, really? He goes, yeah, let me give you an example. I want you to notice the example he just pulls out of the hat. It's incredible. Look with me, verse 17. He says, But Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, an Old Testament prophet. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, that bothers me every time I read it. Because James is sitting here writing, and he's, and he's writing all these things about the Christian life. He's talked to us about temptation. He's talked to us about trials. He's talked to us about all sorts of things. And then he just pops in there and goes, hey, prayer, if you want to see God work. Like Ian Bale, Ian Bale said, prayer is the nerve that moves the mighty arm of God. He says, if you want to see that, you better start praying. The effective fervent prayers of a righteous Christian causes things to happen. And then he says, oh, by the way, you don't believe me? Don't you remember what happened to the Old Testament prophet Elijah? He prayed, and it didn't rain in Rhoda for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and it rained. And then he just moves on. The last two verses of the book, he deals with church discipline, and then he just stops. And I want to stop him for a minute and go, wait a second. What did you just say? Because, because James, this is a New Testament book for the New Testament church. You're pulling out this example from this Old Testament prophet. And you want to use his example of it not raining on the earth for three and a half years to stir the American church to pray? James like, yep. You know what that tells me about James? He still believes that God does wonders through prayer. He still believes that the God of the impossible does the humanly impossible through our prayers. Now, why does God do that? Because he's chosen to do that. I didn't invent prayer. I didn't invent marriage. No government subcommittee invented marriage. It was invented in the mind of God. And I didn't invent prayer. And I didn't invent God's word. It all came from God. And God has chosen prayer to be the vehicle by which when we, his people, get intimate with him and align our hearts to his so that we're saying, Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. When we get on board with God, God says, great. Now I want to work through you to bring 
my kingdom, to work my will, to work my glory in your generation. So tonight, I want to give you a quick theology, a prayer, and especially since you're in a year of prayer, this will probably do nothing more than reinforce what your pastor has already been preaching to you. But tonight, I just want to encourage you with what the Bible says overall about prayer, and by the time we get done, it should stir all of us to run to the prayer meeting. Now, I will say this, not because of me, but because of the content of God's Word. Almost every church that I preach this message in, I preach it all around the country this year, churches that weren't having prayer meetings started in the beginning. In fact, we just left a church two weeks ago. As soon as I walked in, the pastor said, man, we're going to need a revival. This was two weeks ago down in Asheville, North Carolina, not far from where I'm from. He said, we need revival. And I said, why? He goes, prayer meeting alone. I said, why is that? He goes, every time we call a prayer meeting, three people show up. Well, it's not, it's not a very large church. It's about 50 people. Well, Sunday night after we left, they had 40 at their prayer meeting. And the youth group wanted to be a part. And now they're going to move their prayer meeting to before the worship service so that everybody has a no-excuse reason to come and pray. And then that's going to overflow into the worship service. And so it's just exciting to see that when God's people just take a fresh look at what God has said about prayer, it should stir us to pray. So I want to look at a few of those things tonight. First of all, some foundational truths. There on your handout, I give you five foundational truths that if I didn't give you anything else tonight, should stir every one of us to pray. First of all, you and I know and serve the one true God. Enough said. I mean, that alone right there is to say, I should pray. I don't serve a false God. I don't worship idols. I don't serve Buddha. I don't serve Allah. I serve the one true God. And my God has said, call on me in the day of trouble, I will answer, and you will glorify me. Not only does God command me to pray, but the day Jesus died, the bell of the temple was split in two, saying that God now is going to come and make his temple in us, who trust in him, and now we have access to him 24-7. Come and pray. Come and spend time with me. Come get on board of my heart. I will work my kingdom will through your life. Number two, in Christ, we're his adopted children. Now you say, why is that so important? Because God is no longer just my God, He's my Father. Now, a lot of times after the service, I may be talking to people, but I want you to pretend, let's say one night after a service at a church, I'm standing up here, and for some reason, a line of 200 people want to talk to me for some reason. Let's just pretend. But if one of my kids bypasses that group of people and come up and tug on my shirt and say, Dad, I'm in trouble, I need you now, guess what I'm telling the 200? See ya. You say, why is that? Because I am their father. They are my children. They got access to me anytime they wanted. The day you got saved, God no longer was just your God. He became your father. And he knows what you need before you even ask. And he bids us come. In fact, I love what Jesus said. Jesus said, because he's your father, that changes everything. And because he's your father, he's going to avenge the elect. In other words, he is going to make sure that every prayer you've ever prayed for his glory and his spirit, he takes care of sooner or later. It's great news. Number three, we can come boldly before his throne room at any time. And God says this. He says, you've got access anytime you want it. And since you're always in need and you always need grace for your need, you've always got access. Knock and you will find. Seek and you will find. So you and I can come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. We can go into God's presence and commune with Him anytime we want. In fact, prayer is the greatest of privilege that a Christian has. You say, well, man, the greatest thing God's ever done for me is He saved me. Amen. You know what the second greatest thing He's done for you? Giving you access to Him. Amen. 
It's incredible. Number four, he has promised to listen and answer. And then, I don't want to contradict what you have up here. I want to, I want to, I want to like add to this. God answers all prayer. So I see here you have request answer. Now I know exactly what you mean by that. I totally get it. Totally agree with it. You're exactly right. But I also want to suggest to you the following. God answers every prayer. He answers it yes, no, wait. Some of the greatest answers to prayer I've ever gotten were no. I was in college. I went to Piedmont Bible College in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And uh, I was studying for the ministry. I was studying to be a pastor. I was youth pastor at my home church there in Denton, North Carolina. And man, I was waiting for a, a godly lady to come along that I could marry that would be a great pastor's wife. And I thought this girl named Carolyn was it. And I was talking to Carolyn. In those days, we didn't have cell phones. So you, you know, a bunch of guys at, at late at night at the dorm hall. There was one phone on the hall. And so you waited in line for your turn to call over to the girls' dorm and talk to the girl of your choice. And then you had to be on the phone by 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock because that was curfew. So I'm waiting my turn to talk to Carolyn. And I'm talking to Carolyn, just loving every minute of it. And then I get off the phone with her, and I go lay down. And I'm like, Lord, you know I'm walking with you. I'm serving you. Lord, I'm growing in you. And Lord, you know I need her. So God, give me Carolyn. And I pray that over and over again. Well, guess what my wife's name is today? It's not Carolyn. It's Valerie. Praise the Lord. You see, I thought that that was the answer. And God said, no, it's not. One of the greatest answers to prayer I ever got was a no. And sometimes the greatest answers we have is, hey, it'll come, but you need to learn how to wait. So God answers all prayer, yes, no wait. So I was even thinking about this morning as I was looking up here. I, I, I'm going to assume a lot of these are yeses. But you know what you may want to do in the weeks to come? Put up your good no's. I prayed for this and God said no, and that is the greatest blessing. Or God said wait, because God answers all of his children's prayer. You know how else I know that? Anybody hear parents? Do you always say yes? No. <laughs> I've said no a lot. Now, grandparents, you don't know how to say no at all. I, I'll just pick up a minute. I'll do my mom and dad one day, once they became grandparents, they completely change. I'll do I said, I'll I ever hear you say is yes. They're like, what are you talking about? I said, you never said yes when I was growing up. They're like, I don't remember. I'm like, yeah, you've totally forgotten. You say yes all the time to grandkids. All I ever heard was no and be quiet. <laughs> I, I'll tell you this. When one of my children come up and ask me for something that's totally mature and good for them and for God's glory, I want to bend over backwards to grant that. But if it doesn't match that criteria, I'll be the first one, because I love them, to say no or wait. So God answers all prayer. Now, what is prayer? Well, notice here on your handout, and you don't have to take notes, but I, I gave those for you in case you would. True prayer is an exchange of desires. True prayer is an exchange of desires. Now you say, how do you know that? You say, I've always heard that prayer is just talking with God. Well, it is. Prayer is the vehicle by which we talk with God and commune with God and are intimate with God. But the actual word in the Greek New Testament literally means an exchange of wishes. That's what prayer is. It's an exchange of wishes. And you say, no, I don't know what that means. I mean, what does that mean? Well, it literally means this. It means when you go to God, you give Him what's on your heart, but you wait for him by his spirit through his word to give you what's on his. And when you get up from prayer, it's no longer about what was on your heart. It's about you giving what was on your heart to God. 
and what was on God's heart becoming your heart so that you and God are on the same page. So that when you get up off your knees, you now are saying, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, today would you give me my daily bread so that I may do your will. True prayer is an exchange of desires. It is heart alignment. Maybe one of the reasons the prayer meetings in America are the least attended week of a meeting in the church, and prayer is one of the hardest things to do for a Christian, is because one, if you're going to have effective prayer, you've got to say no to self. It's a denial of self. Two, you've got to say, Lord, instead of being reliant on myself, I've got to be completely reliant on you. Three, you've got to be right with God for prayer to be effective. So, so you can't be holding on to sin and think your prayer life is going to be what it should be. But then four, it could be that we don't want an exchange of desires. That's why many times when we pray, it's gimme, 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 gimme. And God, if you have anything to say, I don't have time for that. We're done. Can you imagine relationships on planet Earth where if I had a friend named George, let's say I had a friend named George, and every time George came up to me, it was like, Mark, hey, you got a quick second? Gimme, 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 gimme. You know what I'm going to do after about the third or fourth time? Oh, here comes George. Hey, Valerie, if you need me or something. <laughs> Fine. There's no relationship. And so many times when we actually run to God, it's a gimme, 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 gimme. You know what James says in James? He says, you have not because you ask not, but sometimes you don't have because you ask and you ask of this that you may spend it on your flesh. So true prayer is a time of worship where I kneel down and I say, God, I'm getting off the throne of my heart. You are Lord of my life. Change my heart. Not my will, but yours be done. Lord, what do you want according to your word in my life? Now, Lord, I want that too. I delight myself in the Lord. You give me the desires of your heart. Now, Lord, your desires are mine. Now, here's what I'm going to ask for, for your kingdom and your glory. And I want to be used by you. And here's another thing. You want your prayers to be effective? Plan on when you get up and pray, obey. Yeah. It's pray and obey. And then all of a sudden, God says, now watch me do the impossible. In and through your life and in and through your church. True prayer is an exchange of desires. Now, down at the bottom there, I gave you a definition from John Bunyan on prayer. It's one of the greatest definitions of prayer I've ever read. John Bunyan wrote the second most popular book in human history. It's the Pilgrim's Progress. The first is the Bible. And he wrote this from a jail cell, and I think it is amazing. I think he looked at all of Scripture and came up with this definition of prayer. He said, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of your soul to God through Christ. Because it's through Christ that you get to God. And you do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. So it's in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. And what do you pray for? The things that God has promised. Now, here's the thing. In your Bible, some have estimated that we have over 3,000 promises. Some have estimated we have over 6,000 promises. A promise is something that God has given to the believer that he'll keep every time. God cannot lie. He is faithful, even more faithless, and he will never go back on his promise. And in fact, the Bible says this. It's one of my favorite verses on the Bible. The Bible says that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Here's what that means. If God kept his greatest promise, which was this one, he'll most definitely keep all the other ones. Here's a promise. Uh, you got a bad phone call, you went through a hard trial. Here's one. Be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You need that whether it's cancer. You need that whether it's death. You need that whether it's financial loss. You need that just to get through the day. You say, well, how do I know God will do that every time? Because He promised. Well, how do I know God will keep His promises? Because He kept this one. And the reason you have Philippians 4, 6, 7, and 8 as a promise is because it's tied up in this one. And if you're in Christ, which means you're all tied up in this, then everything that this accomplished for you is given to you in the promises. Yeah. Yeah. So you pray for the things that God promised. And here's one. Pre-COVID, in the middle of COVID, post-COVID, Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. More churches are shutting their doors than ever. There are certain churches that will not get their attendance back for a while. Pre-pandemic, things weren't looking good. Now, post-pandemic, things aren't looking good. I think it's prime time for a revival. But no matter what the commentators say or Barna says, I have this promise. Christ will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You say, is He going to keep that promise? Yep, because He kept this one. So when we pray, learn the promises of God. We sing that old hymn, Standing on the Promises, I Cannot Fall or Fail. Well, you can't stand on the promises if you don't know what they are. So one of the greatest things I would encourage you to do in your quiet time, and I've been doing this in my own quiet time, I'm walking through the Bible with a, with a, a pencil. I bought it over here at Scripture Truth in Fincastle a few weeks ago. It's a pencil, and it has all these different colored leads, and so I've got different colors for different things. But every time I run across a promise, I, I mark it in orange. Because I want to learn the promises, because those are the things I'm praying for to be done in and through my life. Because I know God will keep His promises. Now, prayer, if it's going to be effective, what do we need to know? Well, first of all, God works powerfully through prayer. God works powerfully through prayer. James says here, the energetic, boiling hot, that's what the word fervent means, prayers of a righteous man, that's a person who's walking with Jesus and appropriating Christ in his life, availeth much. Things just happen. Heaven moves on earth when righteous people, in the power of the Spirit, according to the Word of God, truly pray. And not just pray, but pray when we pray. I think one of the reasons teenagers would think a prayer meeting in the American church could not be more boring is because we haven't learned to pray when we pray. I tell you, if you learn how to pray when you pray, you say, what are you talking about? Pray when you pray. I mean, believe who you're talking to. And in the power of the Spirit, go to town praying. Pray. Our prayers can about bore somebody to sleep. Yes. Notice what James says here. He didn't say a boring prayer meeting. He said the effective, which means energetic, boiling hot, fervent prayers of a godly person. Watch out. God's going to move heaven and earth. God works powerfully through prayer. I'll give you a quick illustration and then we'll walk through these. Very quick. I had the privilege of pastoring a church in Luray, Virginia, um, before I pastored Shenandoah. A little town of about 5,000 people, only 20,000 people in the whole county. But it was one of the closest things to a modern-day revival that lasted about four years that I've ever seen. And long story short, God was just saving people left and right. When we got there, there were about 250 people in the church. Four and a half years later, when we left, there were about 550. But I baptized 180 of them in four years. And most of them were adults. And it wasn't because of me. We just got in on it. God called my wife and I there. And when we got there, God was already moving in the people. But one thing I noticed with the people, two things. 
we weren't really doing kind of, well, I mean, it wasn't like we weren't ever doing outreach, but we really didn't have like an outreach program. It was just, we were preaching the word, we were fervently praying, and we were loving on one another, and we were loving on the community, and God was just blessing. And I know I'll forget, the church was growing, and it was packing out, and the auditorium seated about 400. And we had started an overflow room because we had more people than the auditorium would see. And it actually became the norm in our church. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. I wish it would have happened while I was here in Roanoke. I mean, we saw a lot of good things over at Shenandoah, but I never saw anything like this. I, I've never seen a sentence. It became the abnorm for someone not to raise their hand on Sunday morning saying they need to be saved. In fact, if we went two or three Sundays without somebody raising their hands saying they need to be saved, we, were, we started asking what's wrong. Now, I'm going to tell you why that's so important. I grew up in a church where it went, we went 10 years without seeing somebody get saved. Now, when I got to Mount Carmel, they had the baptistries back to the back. And I won't forget, I walked in the baptistry, and it was a florist. You say, what are you talking about? We know the communion table. You know how everybody puts flowers on the communion table? That's where they stored all the flowers. You couldn't baptize somebody if you wanted to. You couldn't get to the baptistry. It was a florist. And I looked at one of the deacons, I said, good, night. I said, you got every flower you've ever put on the communion table in here. He goes, yeah, this is where we put them. I said, when was the last time y'all did a baptism? Oh, I don't know. About six years ago, maybe. I said, well, are we planning on anybody getting saved? He goes, well, that'd be good. <laughs> I said, well, after they get saved, you think we can baptize them? Well, it was like we're going to have to clean some stuff out. Yeah, I said, let's do that. Let's, let's pick another room and make that the forest. These are baptistries. Prepare for rain. And over the next four years, those baptism waters were stirred 180 times. And you know what was amazing? One of the greatest prayer meetings I've ever had was on the night before Easter Sunday. Our folks, even though that town was only 5,000 people, they invited 2,000 people to Easter Sunday service. And I looked at the deacons and I said, guys, if 2,000 people come, we're obviously not going to be able to seat them all in one service because we're already packed out. We need to go to two services. And they said, okay. So we went to two services. Well, the night before, I was overwhelmed with the reality that we needed to pray. So my oldest son is sitting right here. He's on his way to the mission field this, this fall. Uh, to North Africa, and um, he was up uh, visiting with me, and my other son was with us, and the youth pastor was with us. And long story short, we went over on a Saturday night before Easter Sunday, and I said, no, guys, we're going to pray until God tells us we can get up. Well, they kind of looked at me like, what does that mean? It means that we're not going to tell God, we're not going to dictate the prayer time to God, we're going to God dictate the prayer time to us. And so we prayed for three hours, and we didn't ask God anything until the third hour. He said, well, what'd you do for the first couple hours. We worship, we rehearse promises, we confess sin, but I told the guys, I said, we are not asking God for one thing until we've gotten to his heart. And that night, I don't forget, God so impressed my heart. I was like, Lord, they've invited 2,000 people, just fill the place up twice. I mean, even if we filled up the place twice, it's only 800. But 800 people in this county need to hear that Jesus rose again. And I, I just remember God so put that on my heart to pray. And then I prayed for another guy to get saved who said he wasn't coming to church. But God so burned my heart that night and I prayed for him. Well, long story short, I got up the next morning. I showed up at the church. The place was packed out. It was the first time we'd ever had two services. And I walked in and I thought, they've all come to the early service. No one's coming to the next service. <laughs> but long story short, in the second service, it only packed out an overflow room. That day in a little town of 5,000 people, 750 people came to church. And I know what we'll forget it, because I knew that what God had done that morning was a direct result of praying and obeying. But then I was so overwhelmed by the number of people there, I forgot about the God that I had prayed for. 
praying that he would come to know the Lord on Easter Sunday. Because he had said he wasn't even coming to church. Halfway through the second service, I'm preaching, I'm going at it. And all of a sudden, I look up, and he's sitting, like, right there. And I, it was so disturbing, I almost stopped the service. I said, you came! But I didn't do that because it kind of messed things up. And I never forget, he looked up at me, and he was so under conviction. He was the first hand that went up that day for salvation. And he and his wife, they support our ministry every month. But you know what? The night before, and with, with witnesses, God so laid it on my heart for that man to be saved. And it was that day after church, he called me and said, I need to come to you in my office, in your office. We sat down and he goes, I don't know the words to say. I can just tell you this. I want Jesus. And I hope my boys never forget that prayer. Now, you say, does every time you pray stuff like that happen? Not every time, but I am saying this. The more my prayer life gets where it should be, the more stuff happens. And you know what? I think the same is true for everybody. But we fail to write it down. I pray about all sorts of stuff that God takes care of, but I forgot I even prayed it. And then I fail to give him glory for it. And so, tonight, I just want to encourage you this. God works powerfully through prayer. And God will do more in your life and your church in 24 hours in prayer than he will do in years of us spinning our own wheels. Number two, not only does God work powerfully in prayer, but let me give these to you quickly, and we're going to bring things to a close. God works powerfully through prayer, and we have a good Heavenly Father who will answer now, I put the verses there on your notes because don't take my word for it. Go home and look up these passages. This is Jesus telling us all these things. We have a good Heavenly Father who will answer. If unrighteous people will answer people and give them good things, how much more an all-righteous God? Number three, God works His glory through prayer. God works His glory through prayer. And number four, prayer aligns us to His will, His kingdom, His desire, and glory. So we have a good Heavenly Father who will answer. God works His glory through prayer, number three. And number four, prayer aligns us to His will and His kingdom. Now I just want to make a quick comment, and then we'll look at some of these other points. This past fall, we were in Logansport, Indiana, and we were doing revival meetings with this team. And we're going to do the same thing this week. We're going to be praying over your church. On an average day, most days, we get to pray for an hour in the morning as a team, and we get to pray for an hour before the service for what God wants to do with the services. And so, one night, we were there in Indiana, and we were having our prayer meeting before the service. And Joe, he's the fellow that was standing right here, tall guy on the left. One night, I may have him share his testimony. Um, he just got his life right with the Lord this past summer. And it's been amazing to see what's going on with him. But one night at the end of the prayer meeting, we were at this church, and there weren't many teenagers. There were only about two teenagers coming. And, and finally, we got done with the prayer meeting, and Joe said, Pastor Mark, he said, can I say something? I said, sure. He said, uh, as we were praying tonight, he said, God's so impressed upon my heart that, that tonight I'm praying for more teenagers, and I think God's going to do it. And I think we're going to have three times the amount of teenagers tonight that we've been having so that we have some teens to minister to. Because we've been in the church for several days. God was working. Two people had gotten saved. But there was no teenagers coming. Well, I just kind of looked at him. I was like, well, Joe, that's nice. I didn't want to say that's cute, but I almost did. I was like, well, Joe, that's good. And, uh, and, and you know what I almost had going on to me? Unbelief. Like, after the service, I'll explain to Joe on why the same two teenagers kept coming and that it didn't happen threefold like he was praying for. Well, the team got up and sang just like they've been singing for you. They get up and they kick off the first song. I'm down there sitting in the front row watching the team. They're all smiling. And about that time, all their faces changed. And while they're singing, they're doing stuff like this. <laughs> and they want some all over them. And I'm getting mad. I'm like, I cannot believe y'all are doing this for all these people. I'm like, what are you looking at? I'm going to get you. 
And all of a sudden, I turned around, and I will never forget, about 15 teenage girls walked in and filled up two pews. And then all of a sudden, I turned around, I'm like, well, after the service, I walked up, like, who is this group, and where did they come from? Well, this lady walks up to me, she says, sir, I'm a Christian. She goes, I don't even go to this church. She goes, this is the first time I've ever been. She goes, I coach basketball at the local public school. I'm a Christian. She goes, very few of my girls are. She goes, but I heard that this church was having your team, and I thought that my girls' varsity basketball team needed to see young people who love Jesus, so I decided to bring them nice, and the Lord just laid it on my heart. So I went back to Joe and said, Joe, God answered your prayer. He goes, I know it. <laughs> well, a couple weeks later, we came down to Lorraine, Virginia, and we were at a church. And sure enough, same kid, if you want, if you want to get your prayers answered, just talk to him. We prayed for an hour before the service. He did it again. And he's just as serious. He's from Rochester, New York. In fact, here's what they tell me. They said, Mark, you're from the South. A lot of times you're kind of syrupy sweet, and that gets on our nerves. And then they say, they say, they say, now Mark, and sometimes what we find with Southerners, they'll say stuff but not really mean it. He goes, I won't say it unless I mean it. I'm like, oh, I got you, I got you, I got you. One night before the service, he looked at me and said, oh, Mark, I just finished praying. He goes, I think God's going to save 10 people for me. <laughs> That's good, Joe. That's good, 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 good. So I did the service, and after the service, I started to lose count of all the children and teenagers that the team brought back into the service who were sobbing, saying that they had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ that night. In fact, it ended up being 13. I looked over at Joe. I'm like, wow, you prayed for that. Like, yeah. Yep, I know it. And he just keeps on moving like nothing happened. God works his glory through prayer. You say, Mark, that was coincidence. I like what one theologian said. He said, that's fine if you want to call that coincidence, but what I've noticed is that when I don't pray, they don't happen. <laughs> Here's the remainder of a few things I want to give to you tonight. My prayer life will be effective when one is spiritually empowered, boiling hot, and righteous. That's what James says. Secondly, prayer is effective when it's in the name of Jesus. Whatever you ask in his name. Now what that means is, is that Jesus is okay with what you ask. So you've got to get on board with his heart, by his spirit, through his word, so that what he wants is what you want, and therefore you ask what he wants. Number three, prayer is effective when one is abiding in God's word and allowing Christ to make his home in them. So this morning, we talked about abiding with Jesus. When you're making your home in Jesus throughout the day, Jesus says, when you abide in me and my word abides in you, because we're on the same page, you can ask whatever you want, and I'll do it for you. Number four, First John tells us that whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. So prayer is effective when one obeys God's commands and pleases him. So for example, you can pray all day long, all day long for stuff, but if you're not willing to obey, don't plan on those prayers being answered. Because obeying God is tied to effective prayer. And then number five, prayer is effective when we ask according to his will. John says this, this is the confidence. I mean, listen to what he's saying here. Church, you've got confidence. Like, you don't have to make excuses for God. You've got confidence that if you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. Now, in John 15, I'm close with this. And then one final illustration, the pastor's going to come. What can you expect from a vibrant, spirit-filled prayer life? Well, John 15 says you can expect spiritual fruit. So when you're abiding in Jesus and you're walking with him, 
and you have a vital prayer life because you're walking intimately with the Savior, you can expect spiritual fruit to explode out of your life. Secondly, you can expect full joy. Jesus said in John 15, These things I have written to you so that your joy would be full. And then number three, you can expect effectiveness. When your prayer life is where it should be, and when a church corporately is praying the way it should, that church will be effective. You're just not going to find praying Christians that aren't effective. You're just not going to find praying churches that close their doors. You will be effective because God works His kingdom will through our prayers. So I want to close with this illustration. Two things. One day I was in the dictionary on dictionary.com, which is a secular dictionary. And for some reason, I don't even remember why, I was looking up the word enthusiasm. And the word enthusiasm, I scrolled down the dictionary, and it shows you what the word origins are, where the word came from. And I never forget, I'm scrolling down to the secular dictionary, and it said word origin for enthusiasm. This word originated with the Christian church, because when the early church would share the gospel, and people would be converted to Christ, they would be so full of joy that they didn't have a word in their language to describe it, so they called it entheos, which means of God, and that's where we get the word enthusiasm. Now, here's what I found. Here's why I tell you this. Jesus said you'll have full joy when your prayer life is the way it should be. There's two times I see Christians most full of joy in the church. One is when they have answered prayer. When you have answered prayer, you cannot wait to tell people about it. And number two, when you share the gospel and people get saved, you can't wait to tell people at church about that either. That's when we're most full of joy. So if your church is joyless, I would ask you two questions. Have you been sharing the gospel and are you praying? Because if you're doing those two things, you will not lack joy. The first time I ever experienced this, I'm going to share this and I'm going to close. My wife and I just got married. We've been married a few months. I lived in Denton, North Carolina. I was youth pastor in my home church. And, and I wasn't making much money at all. In fact, we were just trying to make ends meet. We've been married about a few months. We bought a house. We just got out of college and we were broke. And uh, it had been about three months. And I finally saved up enough money to take her out on a date. And I looked at her and I said, honey, where would you like to go on a date? Well, in my little town of Denton, there's nothing there. There's only 1,200 people. And if you really want to go on a true date, you've got to leave Denton. So she looked at me and she goes, well, how about Chili's Restaurant up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina? Well, that was about 45 minutes away. And I was like, you know what, honey, I'm all for that. And I walked back into the room where I had my little office area. And I was sitting there counting how much money I had. Because I was sitting there thinking, i got to figure out the gas mileage. If i got to have gas money to get back. And uh, what the bill's going to cost. And so I was like, oh, yeah, let's go. And so we went. And we got into Chili's. And we're sitting there. And the waitress brought us the menu. And I'm sitting there going, wow, I wonder what my wife's going to order. So I'm kind of waiting for her to see what she's going to order. Now, she's very frugal. But I was taking her out on a date, and I was like, honey, order whatever you want. But please don't. But order whatever you want. <laughs> so she's looking, and I'm kind of looking at her for the soup and salad menu to you know, compensate. And uh, so the waitress walks up, and, and, and the waitress is sitting there talking to us. And all of a sudden, it's like the Holy Spirit just laid on my heart. Why don't you ask her what you can pray for her about? And I'm, I'm not lying. Here's exactly what I told the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I'm a youth pastor. I deal with people all day long. This is the first date I've had with my new wife in three months. We've only been married a few months. Tonight's about us. I'm not asking her what I can pray for about. I'm off the clock right now. <laughs> and it was almost like the Holy Spirit, and I hate to speak audibly, but it was like the Holy Spirit was like, fine then. Do you want to quench me? Fine. But you will be in disobedience. And I'm sitting there going, oh. 
So she comes back up to the table, and I look up at her, and I don't remember what her name was. Let's pretend it was Rose. I said, Rose, how are you doing tonight? She goes, I'm fine. I said, Rose, is there anything I can pray for you about? And she looks down at me. Her face turns all red. She gets this really awkward look. She goes, no. And she walks off from the table and goes back into the kitchen. And my wife's just sitting there having a good time eating her meal while I have my soup. And, and, and she goes back, and I'm like, Holy Spirit, I told you. This was not a good idea. A few minutes later, she came back down the kitchen, walked up to the table, tears were rolling down her face. She looked at me and she goes, can I run something by you? I said, sure. She goes, no one's ever asked me that before. I said, really? I didn't want to. I didn't want to. <laughs> she goes, actually, there is something you can pray for me about as the tears are rolling down her face. She said, I'm a single mom. I've got a six-month-old. He's really sick. And I'm working two jobs just to make ends meet. And right now he's staying with my mom and dad. And she goes, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, well, can we pray for you? She goes, sure. So we prayed for her. I was like, okay, Holy Spirit, you're right, as always. So we're eating our meal. Well, then she brought the ticket, the moment I've been waiting for. She brings the ticket, and it, this was in 2002, and we were broke. And I looked at the ticket, and I think the meal was like $20. Which in today's currency would be like 50. And where my, pay, where my paycheck was in those days, it felt like 80. And I looked at it and I said, $20. Well, then I forgot something. There's this thing called tax and a tip. And I'm like, oh, man, I forgot about that part. Oh, I'm worried about just getting home. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit put on my heart, don't just pray for her. If it's in your power to help her, why don't you do that? I'm like, I don't want to. And I'm looking down there, 15%, 18%, 20%. You know, they calculated all the way down to the bottom, so there's no excuse. And the only thing that would come to my mind was $20. I'm like, Lord, that's the price of the meal. I'm broke. $20. I mean, it was so clear. I knew if I didn't write $20 in that little credit card blank for the tip, I would be so willing it's going. So I was not a hilarious giver. I begrudgingly wrote the $20. I totaled it up, closed it, laid it aside, and took a deep breath like, oh, Lord. Well, about that time, my wife reached over and grabbed that ticket and jerked it out of my hand and looked at it. And then all of a sudden, that we've been Baptists our whole lives, she got full-blown charismatic. She started doing this little dance. I mean, I'm like, we've only been married three months. For dad, the Baptist preacher, I'm like, I've never seen her do such a thing. She's like doing this dance. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to do it. She started wiggling in the booth and started like making noises. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And she won't stop. Finally, I'm embarrassed to say this today. She's so embarrassing me and my face is turning red and people are looking at us that I'm getting upset with her. And I'm like, please stop it. Pretty please stop it. No, please stop it. She's not stopping. It's like the more I tell her to stop it, the more extravagant she's getting in her joy. Finally, I got frustrated with her. I said, let's just go. She goes, okay. So she gets up on the, I'll never forget. I followed her all the way up the restaurant, all the way down the sidewalk. And she's like doing this little dance all the way out to the car. I'm like, I really don't know what to do with her right now. So we get in the car, and finally I'm like, please don't ever do that again. You have embarrassed me to the death. And I said, I know, I know, I'm a great guy. I left her $20. Then my wife looked over at me and goes, I'm not excited that you left her $20. I'm like, you're not? Then what is all this about? 
She goes, what you don't know is that when she brought the ticket, I prayed that you would leave her $20. And then all of a sudden, that little dancing that she had, I caught it too. <laughs> and we burst forth with joy all the way down the road. You say, why did you just tell me that? Jesus said that when you get on board with him, he won't, he's not a killjoy God. He said, I will give you my joy, and it will run over. And that was one of the first times I've ever understood the heavenly joy that God gives when you actually get on board with him and what he wants to do through you, and you pray and obey. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Pastor's going to come and just... Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.